6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 120 through 134. The captivity of Zion, we were like them that dream. In other words, it's a too-good-to-be-true kind of feeling they're feeling, coming from wherever they're coming up to Jerusalem. Then was our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then said they among the heathen, The Lord hath done great things for them. The Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Just a song of joy, a heartfelt joy, as they come back into the, 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 the scope of Zion. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. I'll come on to that in a minute. Turn again our captivity. The language here seems to suggest of multiple returns. Now, the, the, from the Babylonian captivity, their first return was under Cyrus's decree. He not when he captured, captured Babylon, he, Daniel came out and read to him Isaiah, this letter that that is written to him, written 150 years earlier, calling him by name, outlining his career. He's so impressed by that. It's a matter of history that he released, not only released the Jews to go back and build their temple, he gave them financial incentives. He made big donation for the temple. He gave each one financial incentives to go. Only 50,000, in fact, a little less than 50,000 returned. And, uh, you know, one of our students wrote in, and was curious, you know, you mean the others were disobedient? Yes, they really were, because they should have gone. That was their, really their destiny. But only 50,000 took advantage of it under Cyrus. That's in Ezra, the first three chapters. It actually lists the families and so forth. And uh, it's later under Darius in Ezra chapter 6 that another group joined them. And then in chapter, the next uh, chapter 7 and 8 under Artaxerxes, a subsequent king, some more went. But so there were some, uh, there are three uh, recorded uh, returns, if you will. But again, this captivity could refer yet to another one, yet future, as the streams in the south. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. And the word joy there can also mean singing. They that sow in tears shall reap in singing. There is an ancient proverb that sort of fits this. It says, he that believes what he doth see, this is the seed. Uh, excuse me, he, he that believes what he does not see, this is the seed, shall one day see what he hath believed, that's the harvest. That's the proverb that this sort of echoes in a sense. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And so this is analogous to what the New Testament says, be not weary in uh, well-doing and so forth. Okay, now we come to a very famous psalm, another one of the songs of ascent. And this psalm has been used on a number of very important official occasions. For example, it was used in the inauguration of President Eisenhower. Two Bibles were used. One of them was George Washington's Bible, and it was open at Psalm 127 during the inauguration. 
And there's, and there's also some quotes I'll come to in a minute. And it's a very basic idea that we must always keep in front of us as we take on ventures. And, uh, and by the way, it says a song of degrees for Solomon. That line is not in the Septuagint for some reason. And uh, some people uh, debate the fact that it was written by Solomon. It may have been written by David for his son, but those are all speculations in any case. And the word vain is going to occur three times in these verses. Let's just take a look at it. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. That's interesting. I never thought about it before. You go to bed early or sleep late, or excuse me, do it the other way around. If you stay up late, working hard, or you get up early to do a little extra, it's vain. I never realized that. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. The Lord really loves you, you'll get your full night's sleep. You've got to trust him. Think about it. You know, it's interesting, everything is in vain unless God is in it. That's basically what it's trying to say. It's not trying to tell you not to, to work late or get up early. It's just pointing out, make sure God is in it is the point. Benjamin Franklin, during the Constitutional Convention, was confronted with an impasse. They were ready to break up. And ben Franklin made a speech. And he said in a speech, if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without God's notice, is it possible that an empire can rise without his aid? And with that, he called him to prayer. And with that, the impasse was dissolved and they went on to create the Constitution or Declaration of Independence. Or whichever, whichever the, I forget which conference it was. <clears throat> Low children are an heritage to the, of the Lord. Now, it switches from building your house now to the family. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. See, a man's offspring were his protection. His young men, his youngs, youngs grew to the young men that would protect him in his old age. That's sort of the flavor of what's the idioms that are being used here. Okay, Psalm 128. We're going from there to home sweet home, huh? Blessed is everyone that feareth the Lord and that walketh in his ways. For thou shalt eat the labor of thine hands. Happy shalt thou be, and it shall be well with thee. Thy wife shall be as a fruitful vine by the sides of thine house. Thy children like olive plants round about thy table. Very colorful, very poignant, very direct. Behold, that thus shall the man be blessed that feareth the Lord. The Lord shall bless thee out of Zion, and thou shalt see the good of Jerusalem all the days of thy life. Yea, thou shalt see thy children's children, and peace upon Israel. You know, unless there's a very reverential fear of God, there will not be a happy home. You can go through all the conferences you want to. You can read all the books you want. 
You'll never have a happy home unless your relationship in the home with God is correct. That's the key. Anyway, in verse 6, we now are to children's children. We've gone through three generations in six verses. How time flies, huh? And you realize, of course, why grandchildren are so dear, why they get along so well with grandparents. Do you understand why? They're all united by a common enemy, right? Yeah. I just thought I'd give you that. Or as the other person quipped once, he says, if we know how much fun our grandchildren would be, we would have had them first, right? Okay. Anyway, Psalm 129, I'll call it burned but not consumed. Reminds you of the burning bush, doesn't it? And there is a parallel here. Many a time, Psalm 129, starting verse 1, many a time have they afflicted me from my youth, may Israel now say, many a time have they afflicted me from my youth, yet have they not prevailed against me. The plowers have plowed upon my back, they made long their furrows. It's a picture of Israel, burned but not consumed. The Lord is righteous. He hath cut asunder the cords of the wicked. Let them all be confounded and turned back that hate Zion. Let them be as grass upon the housetops, which withereth afore it groweth up. Wherewith the mower filleth not his hand, nor he that bindeth the sheaves his bosom. Neither do they which go by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. The blessing of the Lord be upon you. That should be incorporated not just in the home, but in the businesses today too. A man's religion should be visible. And not only an integral part of his home life, but also his business life. Boaz was a businessman in the book of Ruth. When he spoke to his workers, he said, The Lord be with you. And they resp responded to him, The Lord bless thee. What a model that would be. There are a few businesses that are like that, and aren't they a blessing? Are they a blessing? Now here's a psalm that has got a strange label. It's a Pauline psalm. Where on earth did it get that label? From Martin Luther, among others. Why would a psalm be called a Pauline psalm? There are penitential psalms. There are seven of them. And, and uh, the, what the penitential means, it deals with suffering under God's discipline, where God is disciplining us for something. What are our choices when that happens? From Hebrews 12, we can despise it if we're not careful. We can resist it. No, no. We can collapse under it. No, 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 no. Better yet, we should accept it and submit. And our prayer should be that the lessons not be wasted. If God's taking us to a woodshed, praise God, that must, that must mean he loves us. And our challenge is not to despise it, resist it, or collapse under it, but rather, not only to accept it and submit, but to pray that the lessons be learned the first time, so it doesn't have to happen again. And 130 is one of those kinds of psalms. Martin Luther called these psalmi Pauline, Pauline psalms, the four of them he called that, Psalm 32, 51, 130, and 143. Why did he call them Pauline psalms? Psalmi Pauline. He explained that these psalms teach us that the forgiveness of sins is vouchsafed to all who believe without having any works of the law to offer. Paul's main theme is that we're saved by grace, not by works. And each of these psalms are built around that truth. 
We always associate that truth to the New Testament. No, you'll find it here in Psalm 130. And Martin Luther recognized that. That's why he likes to call it a Pauline Psalm, Psalm 130. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark my iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? This is the cry of a drowning man. Out of the depths have I cried unto thee. You almost hear Jonah, can you? And he said down here, the third verse, if thou, Lord, should mark iniquities. The word mark here means to observe and keep a record. Thank God that he's not going to judge us according to our iniquities. We do not want justice. We want mercy. If God judged us that way, we would be lost. We want mercy. The difference between mercy and grace. Grace is giving us something we don't deserve. Mercy is not giving us something we do. In a sense, they're antiphonal to each other. But there is forgiveness with thee that thou may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch in the morning. I say more than they that watch in the morning. See, there is forgiveness for us because the penalty was paid. Christ paid our penalty. The concept of salvation is serious business and it's very costly business, very costly transaction. I love Hal Lindsey's acronym for the word grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. God is able to forgive us because Christ paid our bill. That's, what, that's the ultimate grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. People that watch for the morning know it's coming. It's inevitable, but they're anticipating it. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I know he's coming, but I'm just as excited, if not more so. I say more than they that watch in the morning. Hopeful anticipation. Let Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Romans 11 echoes all of this. Romans 9, 10, 11 is where Paul deals with Israel's destiny. Many people in the church don't realize that God is not through with Israel. They've got a primary, not only do they have a destiny, it's the primary destiny for all of us. Romans 11, verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved. For it is written, There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that. Okay, Psalm 131 is one of the shortest psalms to read of these 15. One of the shortest. But it's the shortest to read and the longest one to learn. We can sit here and memorize it in just a few moments. But it'll be the longest of all of them to learn. What do I mean by that? Well, let's take a look at it. Let's remember, this is written by David. Let's consider David's, he was a victorious warrior, clever general. 
Uh, he was a humble shepherd, the eighth son of a common citizen, and he became Israel's greatest king. Courageous soldier, clever tactician, sincere man of God. He expanded their boundaries. He subdued the Philistines to the west, the Syrians and Hadesar to the north, the Ammonites and Moabites to the east, the Edomites and the Amalekites to the south. Not a bad record. He also amassed all the wealth that Solomon would use to build the temple. He paid the bills in advance. And here, David is going to tell us the essentials of a life that glorifies God and accomplishes his work on the earth, God's work on the earth. This guy is going to give us his advice. He was a constructive administrator. The scripture says he gave judgment and justice to all the people. He organized a priesthood in 24 courses. He was a major poet, songwriter. He wrote these psalms, among others. And he's going to tell us the secret to his achievements before the Lord. Let's take a look at it. Psalm 131. Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Neither do I exercise myself in great matters or in things too high for me. Surely I have behaved and quieted myself as a child that is weaned of his mother. My soul is even as a weaned child. Let Israel hope in the Lord from henceforth and forever. That's the secret. That's the secret. Not, not putting the Lord number one on a list of ten, but putting it on number one on a list of one. And that list does not include me. That's it. True humility is what it's talking about. All through the Psalms, Psalm 138 we'll encounter shortly. Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. He's what? In Isaiah 57, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite one. See where God's values are. He values humility. In 1 Peter 5, verse 5, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you, be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. In 1 Peter 3, 4, But let it be the hidden man of the heart in which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. Of great price. James 4.10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Matthew 11.28, the Lord Jesus himself said, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will rest you, is what it actually says. I'll give you rest, but literally, I will rest you. The Lord values humility. In fact, the flip side is also true. He hates pride. Consider those opposites. He hates pride because it was Satan's pride through which evil entered the world. Okay, Psalm 132, the royal presence. Song of Degrees, again. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions. Let's recall, by the way, that the ultimate son of David is not Solomon, but Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. And keep that in background as we read this. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore unto the Lord and vowed unto the mighty God of Jacob, surely I will not come into the tabernacle of my house, nor go up into my bed. I will not give sleep to mine eyes or slumber to mine eyelids until I find out a place for the Lord and a habitation for the mighty God of Jacob. Lo, we heard of it at Ephrathah, which is an idiom for the region where Bethlehem is located. 
We found it in the fields of the wood. We will go into his tabernacles. We will worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, unto thy rest, thou and the ark of thy strength. Oh my goodness, here we go. The pilgrims are now at Jerusalem, and they've come to the temple where the mercy seat is on top of the ark of the covenant. And so they're at that place. They can't go in, obviously, only the high priest can, but they're there, and they're aware of it. Okay. Arise, O Lord, into thy rest, thou and the ark of thy strength. Now, this may have been the song that they sang when the ark was moved into the temple that Solomon built from the tent that it was previously uh, uh, held at, if you will, and so at the tabernacle. So the ark of thy strength, this is the only place in this series of 15 that the ark is alluded to. And it's a very important issue, the ark of the covenant. And uh, the mercy seat, which is the, what we think of as the lid of that, represent God's throne. Because God is always spoken of as dwelling between, the, or between or above, same word, between or above the cherubim. In Psalm 80 we saw it, and in Psalm 99, both Psalms open with that allusion. Speaking of God as he that dwelleth above or between the cherubim. And we know from Numbers, the whole book of Numbers, that this ark, with the mercy seat on top of it, went before them through the wilderness. Whenever they moved, it would be the, the, the place where God was dwelling. When they crossed the Jordan, after they crossed the Jordan, it was temporarily at Bethel in Judges 20, then at Mizpah for a while, and then at Shiloh for a while. Then the, the wicked sons of Eli tried to use it as a good luck charm, and the Philistines captured it. But the Philistines were, suffered a, a series of judgments, and the Philistines themselves recognized that those judgments were because they had stolen the ark, and they were glad to send it back. <laughs> One of the most colorful chapters in the book of Judges. Or, yeah, and, uh, or I should say, uh, 1 Samuel, rather. 1 Samuel 4 through 5, 6, so on. And uh, so, now... When they got it back, it ultimately spends 20 years at the house of Abinadab in Kirith-Jerim in 1 Samuel 6. David tried to move it, but you all recall how he failed in his first attempt. So then it stayed at the house of Obed-Edom for about three months. He finally does properly bring it to Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. And uh, the tabernacle, even though the arks come up, the tabernacle and Moses' furniture is at Gibeon, according to 1 Chronicles 21. But ultimately, Solomon builds a temple and ultimately, of course, moves into the Holy of Holies of the temple. And I think it's going to be instructive for us to spend some focus on this. The, it, the Ark of the Covenant itself was made of wood covered with gold. The mercy seat was made of hammered gold. And God is always referred to as he that dwelleth between the cherubim. That's a mercy seat idiom. In fact, the Holy of Holies is defined as the location of the mercy seat. Yes, obviously the Ark of the Covenant is there, but it's interesting to check your text that the location of the Holy of Holies uh, is described as wherever the, the mercy seat is. That's in Leviticus, 6, Leviticus 16.2 and 1 Chronicles 28.1. Now, if you look at Exodus 25, where this is all being constructed, God is giving instructions, thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. It's my understanding from the Ethiopians that the ark itself is deteriorating because it's wood covered with gold. But the mercy seat is a pure gold. 
Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubim of gold, and of beaten work shalt thou make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. So it's the mercy seat that has two cherubim, these winged creatures, at each end. Make one cherub at the one end, and the other cherub at the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall ye make the cherubim on the two ends thereof. Continues, and the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the face of the cherubim be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and in the ark thou shalt put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there will I meet thee. God is going to meet them on that mercy seat. I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. Notice the emphasis, the mercy seat in the scriptures always separate from the ark, even though it sits on top. From between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony of all things which I will give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. In Numbers we read, and when Moses was gone into the tabernacle congregation to speak with him, then he heard the voice of one speaking unto him from off the mercy seat that was upon the ark of testimony from between the two cherubim, and he spake unto him. God and Moses had audible conversations. We don't think of that. We often think of thought, you know, other more mystical kind. No, it's very simple. God is talking to him, and he talks to God audibly. That's the number seven, verse 89. We get to 2 Samuel 6. It says, David arose and went with all the people that were with him from the Baal of Judah, which is in the same place as Kiriath-Jerim, by the way, to bring up from thence the Ark of the Covenant, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubim. There's that, that idiom is always there. In Psalm 132, picking up our psalm now from all of that, let thy priests be clothed with righteousness. Let thy saints shout for joy. For thy servant David's sake, turn not away the face of thine anointed. The Lord hath sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, May God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Mm -hmm.